Welcome to the Beyond Borders podcast, a podcast covering topics in American immigration law and policy. Beyond Borders is brought to you by the immigration attorneys at the law offices of Jamie Gordon, serving our clients worldwide and helping our listeners live beyond borders, work beyond borders, and love beyond borders. We are immigration lawyers, but we are not your immigration lawyers, at least not yet. To learn more about us or to visit our world headquarters outside Boston, Massachusetts, visit us online at jamiegortonlaw.com. My name's Jamie Gorton, and I'm hosting this episode today. This is a friendly reminder that this episode does not contain legal advice, and you should not make any decisions based on the information that you hear in this episode, at least not until you consult with a qualified immigration attorney. Without further ado, let's get to today's episode. This is episode 001 of the Beyond Borders podcast, and it's a little bit rough. We are responding to breaking news that happened in the last 24 hours that's really motivating this podcast to get off the launch pad. So we're hoping that as time goes on, you'll continue to listen, and you'll see that our production quality has increased somewhat as the episodes go on. Alternatively, if you have been a listener and you've decided to go back and listen from the very beginning, we're hoping that you'll go back and say, oh, well, that's very interesting to see sort of the rough cut of the early podcasts. However, there are two pieces of very important news, both of which are coming out of the realm of immigration litigation. And these pieces of news are just too important for us to pass by without commenting on. So without further ado, let's get into our today's podcast regarding the arguments today at the Supreme Court regarding Travel Ban 3.0, and also the decision that came out from the D.C. federal courts last night regarding the DACA program and the rescission of the DACA program. The Supreme Court heard arguments today regarding Travel Ban 3.0, which is the so-called Muslim ban. And so far, according to commentators that I've been able to check in with, it doesn't look good. Or at least it doesn't look good for people who support a fair and anti-racist, anti-Islamophobic immigration system. Nina Totenberg, our fairy godmother of the Supreme Court, has indicated that it seems that there are five votes in favor of the proposition that, yes, the President of the United States has broad power over national security, in particular with the immigration laws. The way these sort of nesting dolls stack together is that Congress, we know, has essentially plenary or unlimited power to regulate the immigration system. That's not controversial. Uh, And then in turn, the Congress can give broad power relative to protecting national security to the executive branch, which includes the President, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Department of State. Here, that seems to be the vote that's going to carry the day, the broad proposition that national security is important enough to occasionally overlook some other sins of omission in America's immigration policies. I haven't had the opportunity to check in with the oral arguments I am going just on news reports and the briefings that we've received regarding the arguments, so we will keep this podcast informed with further developments. However, 
I am very nervous that we're going to have a setback in the travel ban 3.0 litigation, especially seeing since here in Boston, we have excellent attorneys with our chapter of AILA, American Immigration Lawyers Association, New England, who were the first ones to have the boots on the ground and led by our past president, Susan Church, all credit where credit is due, was able to implement the first injunction against travel ban 1.0. And of course, then we had Travel Ban 2.0, which was struck down. And then we had Travel Ban 3.0, which was subjected to a temporary injunction, a temporary injunction that was unfortunately later lifted. I do have clients on my docket that are directly affected by Travel Ban 3.0. Yes, they are from a predominantly Muslim country. In this instance, they're from a certain country of which they are refugees, and instead of being in that particular country, which is covered by the travel ban, they've been living for the last two decades or so in Egypt. However, uh, although their visas were initially approved in Egypt at the consulate in Cairo, even to the extent that the consulate in Cairo took their passports to install the visa foils into the passport, we now know that the consulate issued a non-issuance decision saying that they are not eligible for the waiver for Travel Ban 3.0, even though they do have a bona fide relationship to the U.S. citizen petitioner, uh, which I, disappoints me greatly. It's very clear that this is an instance where the consulate, whether on purpose or through just negligence, slow walked the approval and took enough time that uh, although they had been approved while the injunction was in place, the injunction then went away and now they returned the visa, the, the passports uh, with no visas in them. So I am deeply disappointed that this seems to be one of the hallmarks of the Trump administration. I did take a bold stance earlier and say that this is uh, certainly not an anti-racist and certainly not an anti-Islamophobic measure. Apologies for the double negatives. Why do I feel confident that this is the case? Well, I'll take my cue from the NAACP, who raised the very clever argument, among other people who have raised the same argument, including the ACLU, uh, that just says that, yeah, listen to what candidate Donald Trump said before he became President Donald Trump. And candidate Donald Trump was very clear. He said that he was calling for a, quote, Muslim ban, end quote. Voila. Uh, it, this is clearly motivated by an Islamophobic animus. I'm very confident putting that stance out there on the airwaves in my podcast. So, feel free to prove me wrong. Uh, I really don't think you can. This was the bill of goods that he promised, and now it is the bill of goods that the federal government has been directed to deliver. So again, immensely disappointing, but we will keep this space updated as the decision of the Supreme Court comes out. We could be pleasantly surprised. I am not holding my breath, and it, dear listener, I am encouraging that you do not hold your breath either.
So let's move on to our second topic of the day, which is probably more pertinent to most of my listeners, all, you know, dozens of you. And that is the ongoing litigation surrounding DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. And let's do a little bit of catching up to speed. DACA is a program that allows hundreds of thousands of people who were brought to the United States illegally as children, typically by their parents, but universally through no fault of their own. This program allows them to receive protection from deportation, which is most important, but also allows them to obtain work authorization, a very close second, and before its cancellation also allowed the issuance of certain travel documents. Now, this was a deeply unpopular program uh, by people on the right-handed spectrum of American politics, and we saw this boiling to the surface immediately after the election. I vividly remember the panic that myself and all immigration lawyers seemed to have after the aftermath of the election. There was a lot of discussion that immigration attorneys should under no circumstance apply for DACA for new applicants because it is, in essence, applying for a government registration of undocumented aliens in the United States. And many people stopped applying for clients, uh, and you know there was a lot of wisdom to, to deciding not to apply for new applications because there's still a lot of uncertainty about what information is being shared from the DACA program to ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, or other governmental law enforcement agencies. And of course, President Trump has been hot and cold like a Katy Perry song on the issue of DACA, bouncing wildly between, no, it's an illegal program, we've got to get rid of it, to, no, I would never do anything to hurt the kids, to, no, this program is unconstitutional, to, oh, my, my heart goes out to the dreamers and I, I wouldn't do anything to hurt them. Well, in the summer of 2017, the Attorney General of the United States, Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions, sent a letter, essentially a one-page memo, to the Department of Homeland Security, basically saying, look, we're being sued by the certain states uh, regarding this program. The states are arguing that it's illegal, and we think the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is going to agree, so because it's an illegal program, we need to cancel this program. And so on September 5th, 2017, the Department of Homeland Security issued a rescission memo stating that the program is going to be rescinded because it is illegal. This spawned a lot of litigation because every immigration attorney in the country slapped their foreheads all at the same time and said, you've got to be kidding me. This is very, very thin rationale. And yes, we easily predict that this is going to be caught up in litigation perhaps for years in the federal courts before things get resolved. Lo and behold, we were right. The immigration advocates immediately started the litigation, and since then there have been two injunctions of different shapes. The current one is broad enough that allows people to apply for extensions of existing DACA grants and apply for new extended work authorizations if they had already received DACA 
when the program was canceled. So no new applications, but renewals of old approved applications became okay because of the injunctions from the federal courts. That brings us to the decision that came out from the federal courts in Washington, D.C. last night from Judge John Bates in a consolidated case with lead plaintiffs NAACP v. Trump and Princeton v. United States. And this is a decision that really only federal court nerds can love. And I am not a federal court nerd. I am an immigration law nerd. So I will do my best. Most of the 60-page order was relative to the issue of standing, which is the legal doctrine of does a person have the ability to challenge an action in federal courts? And the government, unsurprisingly, said, no, the NAACP does not have standing, nor does Princeton. What do either of these groups have anything to do with immigration law? They have certainly not been harmed. But more importantly, this is not reviewable by the courts anyway, because it is an agency decision. And under our federal court system, the federal courts do not have the ability to review most types of agency decisions made under uh, the doctrine of Chevron deference. Again, not a federal courts nerd. I don't want to get too much into the chin stroking, but it did occupy the majority of the judge's 60-page memo decision. And both sides scored good points. Uh, they, both sides had a win-some, lose-some result. Uh, at the end, though, the court came down and reviewed, of all things, cases relative to maritime law, which again just goes to show you don't know what's going to pop up when you start playing around in the federal courts. And the judge ultimately decided that this is not the kind of agency decision which is entitled to the deference that deprives a federal court of reviewing that action. This is simply not fitting into the category of a case that is beyond the reach of the federal courts. And from my armchair, as uh, you know, an armchair pundit and a Monday morning quarterback with respect to this case, is I have to say I agree. This is a very dubious agency action to begin with, and we need our Article Three courts to be able to step in and review things when it looks like agencies are taking arbitrary and capricious actions. Arbitrariness and capriciousness is the segue into the second portion of the decision from the D.C. court. In other words, you know, there are rules and then there are rules about rules. And we don't allow the federal government or other state actors to make decisions all willy-nilly or in an irrational way or in a way that sort of ignores the rules as they exist. If you want to make a rule, there is a rule about how you make rules. And if you want to change or rescind a rule, there are rules around that as well. There's typically a public comment period. It has to be published for public notice. There's a wide variety of things that, frankly, uh, did not happen adequately in the, in the DACA rescission. And to that extent, the D.C. court 
uh, under the decision of Judge John Bates would agree with me there. Uh, and that's what it came down to, which is that the only justification for rescinding DACA was that it was illegal uh, or unlawful, to use the government's words, that this was a program that had to get canceled because it was an unlawful program. Now, I have no idea why this program would be unlawful because anyone who has ever stepped foot into a criminal courtroom, including myself, knows that the prosecutor has a lot of power over what cases move forward and what cases can be dropped or reduced or handled in a gentle way. It's typically not the case that a prosecutor of any type is looking for 100% maximum enforcement of every law against every target. Of course, that's currently the policy of the immigration courts, but I think that's a subject for a future podcast. So with this idea of prosecutorial discretion in mind, it stands to reason that if the executive branch, as the head of all law enforcement in the federal sphere, decides to systematize or codify a regime of prosecutorial discretion against a certain discrete, easily identifiable class of people, well, why shouldn't the executive be able to do so? I'm not sure. Uh, That's partially a rhetorical question, but also partially a question I know the answer to, which is that, of course they should. Uh, Not every case gets prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, and that should go for people who were brought to the United States through no fault of their own as children, which is what this case comes back to. This is about a class of people who were once children in the United States, and then life has a way, had the misfortune of growing up and having to face the realities of not being able to get very far in the United States without having things like a social security number or a document that shows that they are eligible to work in the United States. This, I think, would surprise a lot of native-born U.S. citizens. First query is I have to wonder what Benjamin Franklin and George Washington would think about needing permission to get working in the United States. I don't think that George Washington had to have uh, permission from the government to cut down his cherry tree. And I don't think that uh, Benjamin Franklin would say that uh, early to bed, early to rise makes someone healthy, wealthy, and wise unless they don't have work authorization. I just don't think that's the case. So you had a situation now where the courts have enjoined the rescission and said, if you already had a DACA card uh, with work authorization and deferred action, that that program would not be canceled out from under you, that you would be able to continue to apply for extensions. And whether or not any of those extensions have been granted yet, I don't know. If any attorneys out there want to share a case study with me, please feel free. However, what these injunctions did not cover was allowing people who did not yet have DACA to apply. So let's think about some examples. 
One requirement is that a person who applies for DACA has to have finished high school or obtained a GED or high school equivalency. We can easily imagine that there are people out there who would have been able to apply for DACA on September 5th, 2017, but for the, you know, life has a way that they were not able to finish their GED. Well, imagine that now they have been able to, but they cannot apply for the program. Or perhaps hitting a little bit closer to home because this affects a family that I know and that I have done work for where the older sister has DACA, but the younger sister was too young to apply for DACA. That's right. There is an age requirement. You have to be old enough to apply for DACA. So the older sister receives DACA and she's eligible to continue to have DACA extensions. The younger sister has since turned of age and she is now old enough and she has a clean criminal record and she has a high school diploma and she's not able to work and she's not able to apply. And again, she is just living out her life in the shadows, which I don't think is the result that anyone of good conscience wants from the immigration system. So does Judge Bates's order allow people to apply for DACA for first time registrants? No, at least not yet. Here's what the order did. It said that the September 5th, 2017 rescission memo should be vacated because it was arbitrary and capricious and did not follow the rules and did not say why the program had to be canceled except for it was unlawful and there was really no explanation to the public about why it was unlawful except for, of course, that President Obama did it. And uh, that's the implicit assumption there is that anything that Obama did while he was president must in some way or shape be illegal. So because of that, the rescission is vacated, but that rescission is stayed for 90 days. So the federal government can return to the court and essentially explain itself and present to the court its best arguments as to why this case uh, is an instance of DACA being an unlawful program. And to my fellow attorneys at the Office of Immigration Litigation and to my fellow attorneys at Homeland Security, be it at USCIS or ICE, I wish you sincerely the best of luck. Uh, It's going to be difficult for you and We'll see what you come up with. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading it because it's certainly above my pay grade. And honestly, again, I struggle, really struggle with all of my training and all of my ability to see both sides of the issue. It's difficult for me to raise a good faith argument as to why this is not a perfectly lawful program. As I said earlier, We know all about prosecutorial discretion. If you've ever even seen an episode of Law & Order, you know the prosecute can upcharge, downcharge, null pros, put general continuances onto cases. Prosecutors can take a wide variety of stances on cases. They do not need to 
deport every single child who was brought into the United States illegally, no matter what Jeffrey B. Sessions seems to think about the matter. So that's all I have to say about that. I'm certainly not going to give OIL or CIS any help formulating their arguments over the air, but I do think it's a tall order. So let me take a step back from my role as a commentator on this podcast and offer a little bit more of my editorialization. DACA is a great program. It should be extended, if not just merely reinstated for new applicants. Native-born citizens would be really surprised to learn that you don't get anywhere in the United States without having a social security number and without having a valid photo ID from the government. Well, it's very, very difficult to get a government ID without some sort of clearance paperwork from immigration if you were not a U.S. citizen. And it's not going to be the case where someone gets that social security number without obtaining work authorization from immigration. So think about all the times that you need a social security number. You gave your social security number to apply for college and to apply for student loans so that you could go to college and to get credit cards and to open bank accounts, let alone car loans or mortgages or business loans or really anything else that would bring you into the modern 21st century economy. You're forced down into the underground cash economy and you're working for cash, probably under the table or with an employer who's willing to give you a wink and a nudge and pay you as a quote-unquote independent contractor. I am certainly not saying that's okay, but immigration attorneys know that it happens every single day. What exactly are we accomplishing by taking away that work authorization from people who were brought to the United States when they were children or six years old or they really had no choice or that their parents were already in the United States and their grandmothers and grandfathers were too old or too sick or were no longer alive or otherwise unable to care for them in their countries, usually countries where there's less opportunity and less hope overall for their well-being and their growth and their human rights. I don't think that this is really living up to America's values, but then again, I'm very biased on the matter. So we're going to continue to watch this litigation coming out of DC very carefully. This is certainly not a green light for people who do not have DACA applications to suddenly rush out and apply as an initial application. However, mark your calendars. 90 days from now, we should have an update and we may even see an injunction become a permanent injunction that cancels and vacates the September 5th, 2017 DACA cancellation. Or at least we can hope against hope, because at the end of the day, I think that's what American immigration is all about. You've been listening to the Beyond Borders podcast, episode one. 
If you've liked this podcast, I'm sincerely hoping that you'll be able to subscribe to our future updates, where we're going to be offering insight and interviews into America's immigration system for individuals, families, and businesses. I'm looking forward to having interviews with my associate attorney, members of my community here in the greater Boston area, and immigration attorneys who are willing to come onto the program and discuss current topics in the United States. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed listening to this this podcast. And again, it's a little bit rough cut, so I'm glad you stuck it out with me. This is Jamie Gorton from the Law Offices of Jamie Gorton. Thank you for listening. Beyond Borders podcast is copyright the Law Offices of Jamie Gorton. Jamie H. Gorton, Principal Attorney. All rights reserved. Nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice nor forms an attorney-client relationship. For more information, you can always visit us online at jamiegortonlaw.com. Thank you for listening.